Visits were exchanged between the yacht and Hazel's relatives. Dinners were arranged, and trips into the surrounding country to entertain the visitors. Monsieur Thuron was a welcome guest at every function. He gave a dinner himself to the men of the party, and managed to ingratiate himself in the goodwill of Lord Tennington by many little acts of hospitality. Monsieur Thuron had heard dropped a hint of something which might result from this unexpected visit of Lord Tennington's yacht, and he wanted to be counted in on it. Once, when he was alone with the Englishman, he took occasion to make it quite plain that his engagement to Miss Strong was to be announced immediately upon their return to America. "'But not a word of it, my dear Tennington, not a word of it. "'Certainly I quite understand, my dear fellow,' Tennington had replied. "'But you are to be congratulated. Ripping girl, don't you know, really?' The next day it came. Mrs. Strong, Hazel, and Monsieur Thuron were Lord Tennington's guests aboard his yacht. Mrs. Strong had been telling them how much she had enjoyed her visit at Cape Town, and that she regretted that a letter just received from her attorneys in Baltimore had necessitated her cutting her visit shorter than they had intended. "'When do you sail?' asked Tennington. "'The first of the week, I think,' she replied. "'Indeed!' exclaimed Monsieur Thuron. "'I am very fortunate.' I, too, have found that I must return at once, and now I shall have the honor of accompanying and serving you. That is nice of you, Monsieur Thurin, replied Mrs. Strong. I am sure that we shall be glad to place ourselves under your protection, but in the bottom of her heart was the wish that they might escape him. Why, she could not have told." "'By Jove!' ejaculated Lord Tennington a moment later. "'Bully idea! By Jove!' "'Yes, Tennington, of course,' ventured Clayton. "'It must be a bully idea, if you had it. But what the deuce is it? Going to steam to China via the South Pole?' "'Oh, I say now, Clayton,' returned Tennington, "'you needn't be so rough on a fellow just because you didn't happen to suggest this trip yourself.' "'You've acted a regular bounder ever since we sailed.' "'No, sir,' he continued. "'It's a bully idea, and you'll all say so. "'It's to take Mrs. Strong and Miss Strong and Thurin, too, "'if he'll come as far as England with us on the yacht. "'Now isn't that a corker?' "'Forgive me, Tenny, old boy,' cried Clayton. "'It certainly is a corking idea. "'I never should have suspected you of it. "'You're quite sure it's original, are you?' "'And we'll sail the first of the week, or any other time that suits your convenience, Mrs. Strong,' concluded the big-hearted Englishman, as though the thing were all arranged except the sailing date. "'Mercy, Lord Tennington, you haven't even given us an opportunity to thank you, much less decide whether we shall be able to accept your generous invitation,' said Mrs. Strong." "'Why, of course you'll come,' responded Tennington. "'We'll make as good time as any passenger boat, "'and you'll be fully as comfortable, "'and anyway we all want you, "'and won't take no for an answer.' "'And so it was settled that they should sail the following Monday. Two days out the girls were sitting in Hazel's cabin, "'looking at some prints she had had finished in Cape Town.' They represented all the pictures she had taken since she had left America, 
and the girls were both engrossed in them, Jane asking many questions and Hazel keeping up a perfect torrent of comment and explanation of the various scenes and people. "'And here,' she said suddenly, "'here's a man you know. Poor fellow, I have so often intended asking you about him, but I never have been able to think of it when we were together.' She was holding the little print so that Jane did not see the face of the man it portrayed. "'His name was John Caldwell,' continued Hazel. "'Do you recall him? He said that he met you in America. He is an Englishman.' "'I do not recollect the name,' replied Jane. "'Let me see the picture.' "'The poor fellow was lost overboard on our trip down the coast,' she said as she handed the print to Jane. "'Lost over—' "'Why, Hazel, Hazel, don't tell me that he is dead, drowned at sea. Hazel, why don't you say that you are joking?' Oh. And before the astonished Miss Strong could catch her, Jane Porter had slipped to the floor in a swoon. After Hazel had restored her chum to consciousness, she sat looking at her for a long time before either spoke. "'I did not know, Jane,' said Hazel in a constrained voice, "'that you knew Mr. Caldwell so intimately "'that his death should prove such a shock to you.' "'John Caldwell?' questioned Miss Porter. "'You do not mean to tell me that you do not know "'who this man was, Hazel?' "'Why, yes, Jane. I know perfectly well who he was. "'His name was John Caldwell. He was from London.' "'Oh, Hazel, I wish I could believe it,' moaned the girl. "'I wish I could believe it. "'But those features are burned so deep into my memory and my heart "'that I should recognize them anywhere in the world "'from among a thousand others "'who might appear identical to anyone but me.' "'What do you mean, Jane?' cried Hazel, now thoroughly alarmed. "'Who do you think it is?' "'I don't think, Hazel. I know that that is a picture of Tarzan of the Apes. "'Jane! I cannot be mistaken. Oh, Hazel, are you sure that he is dead? Can there be no mistake?' "'I am afraid not, dear,' answered Hazel sadly. "'I wish I could think that you are mistaken, but now a hundred and one little pieces of corroborative evidence occur to me that meant nothing to me while I thought that he was John Caldwell of London. He said that he had been born in Africa and educated in France. Yes, that would be true, murmured Jane Porter dully. The first officer who searched his luggage found nothing to identify John Caldwell of London. Practically all his belongings had been made or purchased in Paris. Everything that bore an initial was marked either with a T alone or with J.C.T. We thought that he was traveling incognito under his first two names, the J.C. standing for John Caldwell. "'Tarzan of the Apes took the name Jean C. Tarzan,' said Jane in the same lifeless monotone. "'And he is dead.' "'Oh, Hazel, it is horrible. "'He died all alone in this terrible ocean. "'It is unbelievable that that brave heart should have ceased to beat, "'that those mighty muscles are quiet and cold forever, "'that he who was the personification of life and health and manly strength "'should be the prey of slimy, crawling things that—' "'But she could go no further.' 
and with a little moan she buried her head in her arms and sank sobbing to the floor. For days Miss Porter was ill, and would see no one except Hazel and the faithful Esmeralda. When at last she came on deck, all were struck by the sad change that had taken place in her. She was no longer the alert, vivacious American beauty, who had charmed and delighted all who came in contact with her. Instead she was a very quiet and sad little girl, with an expression of hopeless wistfulness that none but Hazel Strong could interpret. The entire party strove their utmost to cheer and amuse her, but all to no avail. Occasionally the jolly Lord Tennington would wring a wan smile from her, but for the most part she sat with wide eyes looking out across the sea. With Jane Porter's illness, one misfortune after another seemed to attack the yacht. First an engine broke down, and they drifted for two days while temporary repairs were being made. Then a squall struck them unaware that carried overboard nearly everything above deck that was portable. Later two of the seamen fell to fighting in the forecastle, with the result that one of them was badly wounded with a knife, and the other had to be put in irons. Then, to cap the climax, the mate fell overboard at night and was drowned before help could reach him. The yacht cruised about the spot for ten hours, but no sign of the man was seen after he disappeared from the deck into the sea. Every member of the crew and guests were gloomy and depressed after these series of misfortunes. All were apprehensive of worse to come, and this was especially true of the seamen, who recalled all sorts of terrible omens and warnings that had occurred during the early part of the voyage, and which they could now clearly translate into the precursors of some grim and terrible tragedy to come. Nor did the croakers have long to wait. The second night, after the drowning of the mate, the little yacht was suddenly racked from stem to stern. About one o'clock in the morning there was a terrific impact that threw the slumbering guests and crew from berth and bunk. A mighty shudder ran through the frail craft. She lay far over to starboard. The engine stopped. For a moment she hung there with her decks at an angle of forty-five degrees. Then, with a sullen, rending sound, she slipped back into the sea and righted. Instantly the men rushed upon deck, followed closely by the women. Though the night was cloudy there was little wind or sea, nor was it so dark but that just off the port bow a black mass could be discerned floating low in the water. A derelict was the terse explanation of the officer on the watch. Presently the engineer hurried on deck in search of the captain. "'That patch we put on the cylinder head's blown out, sir,' he reported, "'and she's making water fast forward on the port bow.' An instant later a seaman rushed up from below. "'My God!' he cried. "'Her whole bleeding bottom's ripped out. She can't float twenty minutes.' "'Shut up!' roared Tennington. "'Ladies, go below and get some of your things together. It may not be so bad as that, but we may have to take to the boats. It will be safer to be prepared.' "'Go at once, please. "'And, Captain Gerald, send some competent man below, please, "'to ascertain the exact extent of the damage. "'In the meantime, I might suggest that you have the boats provisioned.' "'The calm, low voice of the owner did much to reassure the entire party, "'and a moment later all were occupied with the duties he had suggested. 
By the time the ladies had returned to the deck, the rapid provisioning of the boats had been about completed, and a moment later the officer who had gone below had returned to report, but his opinion was scarcely needed to assure the huddled group of men and women that the end of the Lady Alice was at hand. "'Well, sir,' said the captain, as his officer hesitated, "'I dislike to frighten the ladies, sir,' he said, "'but she can't float a dozen minutes, in my opinion.' "'There's a hole in her you could drive a bally cow through, sir.' For five minutes the Lady Alice had been settling rapidly by the bow. Already her stern loomed high in the air, and foothold on the deck was of the most precarious nature. She carried four boats, and these were all filled and lowered away in safety. As they pulled rapidly from the stricken little vessel, Jane Porter turned to have one last look at her. Just then there came a loud crash, and an ominous rumbling and pounding from the heart of the ship. Her machinery had broken loose, and was dashing its way toward the bow, tearing out partitions and bulkheads as it went. The stern rose rapidly high above them. For a moment she seemed to pause there, a vertical shaft protruding from the bosom of the sea, and then swiftly she dove head foremost beneath the waves. In one of the boats the brave Lord Tennington wiped a tear from his eye. He had not seen a fortune in money go down forever into the sea, but a dear, beautiful friend whom he had loved. At last the long night broke, and a tropical sun smote down upon the rolling water. Jane Porter had dropped into a fitful slumber. The fierce light of the sun upon her upturned face awoke her. She looked about her. In the boat with her were three sailors, Clayton and Monsieur Thurin. Then she looked for the other boats, but as far as the eye could reach there was nothing to break the fearful monotony of that waste of waters. They were alone in a small boat upon the broad Atlantic. End of chapter 13